0: Good morning. Our Old Testament reading is in First Chronicles chapter 29, starting in verse 10. First Chronicles chapter 29, starting in verse 10. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. "'Yours, O oh Lord, is the greatness and the power "'and the glory and the victory and the majesty, "'for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. "'Yours is the kingdom, O oh Lord, "'and you are exalted as head above all. "'Both riches and honor come from you, "'and you rule over all. "'In your hand are power and might, "'and your hand it is made great to give strength to all.'" And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners, as our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. Our New Testament reading is in Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonia, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Katie. And we come today to the last section of the book of Philippians. We've made it to the end of the book. You can breathe a big sigh of relief the big fellow is going to be back next Sunday. <laughs> Life as you knew it will get back to normal. Things will resume as you were used to. Well, it's been different, hasn't it, this summer? But I, I think and I trust for you as well, it's been a good summer of hearing God speak to us through his servants and the variety of different per- personalities and perspectives that we've all brought. And we just want to thank you as a preaching team for your grace for your encouragement and your support as we've brought the Word of God to you this summer. Speaking of next week, next week begins our annual spotlight that we call Live, Live 14. It's the time of the year when we think together about what it means to do Philippians 1.27, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And the way it works is this, that Sunday morning there will be four sermons on the theme of mistaken identity. And then during the week, there are additional video and other resource materials available for you in small groups. That's the only place you can find them. So if you're not in a small group and want to participate in Live, there is still time to sign up. Lots of you have signed up in recent weeks. There's room for a couple hundred more, but registration does end at noon on Wednesday. So I'd encourage you to get on the website and sign up to be a part of a small group for Live as soon as you can. There's also a resource available, a book called Who Am I? by Jerry Bridges out in the Resource Center. You can buy it for $6 and that's going to be a great pre-read for preparing for Live 14 next Sunday. And now will you join me again in prayer? Father, we come from a busy week full of distractions and deceptions and seductions. We need according to your word, for you to turn our eyes away from looking at worthless things and to give us life in your ways. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Do that, we pray, through your word now in the power of your spirit to the glory of our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, today from the book of Philippians, we're going to consider the subject of divine economics, when giving is gain. Now, economics has been defined as the production, the consumption, and the transfer of wealth. (laughs) The topic may not interest you as an academic matter, but... Let me assure you that each one of us is very interested in the subject of economics. You, you kids that get an allowance, you'd probably like that to be a little higher. Maybe you teenagers that are just starting your first job at minimum wage, learning what it's like to make money. There are some of you that are in college and you're wondering how you're going to pay for your college bills and eat pizza at the same time. Uh, there are some of you who, parents who have kids in college and you're wondering how you're going to pay their college bills and have them pay for their pizza bills. Uh, If you're in your 50s, you may be beginning to think about those days when you'll no longer be earning a regular income and wonder how you'll survive. And if you are a retiree, you're trying to balance your Social Security check with rising prices. You see, economics, particularly the consumption of wealth, is something that interests every single one of us today. Money is important to our lives, and that's why the Bible speaks a lot about it. And our text this morning is full of references to money. But let me remind you again of the background and of what's going on in our text. You remember that Paul is in prison in Rome. Some time earlier, he had traveled through the area of Macedonia and he had preached Jesus as the Christ in a city called Philippi. Some people put their faith in him and a church was started in Philippi. And now 12 years later, they learn that Paul is in prison in Rome for preaching the gospel. And they understood that in prison in those days, you were not provided with medical care or clothing or even food. Just to survive in prison, you needed somebody else to take care of your needs. Problem is, you can't work while you're in prison. So they understood Paul's need and they took an offering for him and they sent it to him by the hand of Epaphroditus. And we studied about him back in chapter three. And it is the receipt of that money that prompted Paul to write this letter. And so what Philippians is, essentially, it is a missionary thank you letter. Paul was their missionary. He had a need. They were concerned about it, and they met that need. And Paul simply wants to write them and thank them for their participation in his ministry. Now, aren't you glad that they gave Paul some money? Because otherwise, we wouldn't have this rich letter for us to learn from today. Supporting a missionary is a good thing to do. And I'm glad that I get to talk about it this morning. And it's actually even a better thing to do than you know. And this is what Paul explains in the last part of chapter 4 of the book of Philippians. Here he gives us a heavenly financial lesson. He unfolds the mysteries of divine economics. And he teaches us that giving in the kingdom is gain. Now, you remember back in 320, he said our citizenship is in heaven. And so as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we need to understand how economics work up there, because all we're taught down here is how they work on the earth. And if deep in your heart you have a desire to be rich in this world, you have set your sights far too low. What Paul and God, through him, wants to do is to raise our sights up into the heavenly realms and teach us how economics work in the kingdom of God and understand economics is all about the currency it hinges on the currency. Now let me use an example or two to help you understand that um, i 've told you some stories about our dog, Stubby, he has a certain currency that he likes and And how we could tell his most favorite one is, if I were to ask you, if in the morning I put in front of Stubby a bowl of dog food and over here a basket full of a million dollars of cash, what is Stubby going to choose? Yeah, he's going to go straight for his 18 cents worth of recycled dog food. Why? Because he doesn't understand that that million dollars could buy him a garage full of T-bone steaks. You see, he's operating way down here. He can't understand a higher level of economics. Or if we were to bring this into our world with dollars and cents, here's a picture of a 10,000 rupee note. And if you were a Pakistani this morning, just the sight of this note would perk your ears up. This is a big, a big fella. This is worth about a hundred dollars which is about a month's worth of salary for the average Pakistani. But now imagine if I were to take that note and try to give it to the cashier at Target to pay for my groceries, what would the teen behind the counter say to me? Dude, you are in the wrong country. (laughs) That doesn't work here. You see, economics hinges on the currency. And... The currency you value will depend on the world that you live in. And as Americans, we live in a world where dollars are the only thing that make sense. But as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we live in a different world. And we need to understand how economics work in that world. And that's exactly what Paul does for us in this passage today. He is going to reprogram our thinking to lift us up above our normal existence into the heavenly realms, and he's going to teach us that when we begin to think and live in the world of divine economics, there will be an explosion of benefits that we cannot even imagine. So let's take a look at divine economics. There are three currencies in divine economics, and the first currency is that of concern, verse 14. This is the foundation of partnership. Take a look at verse 14 with me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. Here he's referring back to verse 10, and I actually got the word concern right out of verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me. You see, remember, economics deals with wealth, not just with money. And God's economics don't start with money, they start with your heart. And the things that you care about. And in this sense, even if you don't have a dime to your name, you are a wealthy person this morning. Because you have time and you have energy and you have affections. You you can make a difference in the world with what you give yourself to. And it is these things, it is the heart that is most valuable in kingdom currency. God is not first concerned about your money. He's first concerned about your heart. He doesn't want your wallet at first. He wants your affections. Now, he will get to your wallet later. He does want your wallet, but not because of what it has in it, because he owns the cattle on a thousand hills and he could make it all over again just like that, but because of what it signifies about where your heart is. That's why Solomon said in Proverbs, Watch over your heart with all diligence, because out of it flow the wellsprings of life. And so where was the heart of the Philippian church? Paul has told us in verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. It's an interesting word Paul uses here for trouble. It's a very actually a strong Greek word. That is used elsewhere of the afflictions of Christ. And Paul pulls back the curtain a little bit on his own personal struggle. You know he's normally quite stoic. And he's just doing the work. And he doesn't care about himself. But But here he reveals that. This being in prison is no picnic. It's painful and it actually hurts me is what he says. But in my trouble, and he uses another word that I think many of you know a Greek word, share is the Greek word koinonia. He says it was good of you to share, to have koinonia with, to be a partner with me in my struggles. And this, I think, is the key word of the whole book as I've studied it over the summer. Partnership, koinonia, fellowship. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, says the Philippians multifaceted participation in the gospel provides the theological and interpersonal background for understanding the letter. This is what the letter is all about. And Hughes goes on to look at five places, including our text for today, that speak about partnership. And I thought we'd review them real quickly this morning and kind of do a pass through the book again as we review it. Chapter one, verse five. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul means that they had participated with him not only in the benefits of the gospel, but also in the task of spreading it. They were workers together with him. Second, chapter 1, verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me. You have koinonia with me both in my of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. See, this task is not easy. There are roadblocks in the way. There is an enemy who doesn't want his territory invaded and there is a price to pay. And Paul is paying that price in prison. But do you see what he says in verse seven? In the middle of my suffering, God gave me extra grace because that's what he does. And you, Philippians, because you partnered with me, you also get an extra portion of that grace. It's not just the saving grace of the gospel that they had participated with Paul in. It was the enabling grace of the Holy Spirit that came alongside in time of difficulty to sustain him. Third, chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation, any koinonia in the Spirit... What is he saying there? Well, very simply this, that they've been baptized by one spirit into one body. That the same Holy Spirit that opened Paul's eyes to understand and believe the glories of Christ has opened their eyes as well and has now actually come to dwell in them. And they, in a very real sense, are brothers and sisters with Paul because they've been born of the same seed, as it says in First John. They have the same spirit within them. This is how deep their partnership goes. And then fourth, chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share, koinonia, his sufferings. Paul, as we saw a few weeks ago, wants nothing more than to get closer to Christ by sharing in his sufferings. And the Philippians entered into that as well. Look back at chapter 1, verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. They were fellowshipping with Paul in the sufferings of Jesus that came about as a result of making his name known to the nations. You see the depth of their partnership with Paul in the gospel, in grace, in the Holy Spirit, In the sufferings of Christ, they were knit together like this. And so when it comes to money, this was a no-brainer. They didn't even have to think about it. Of course they were going to help Paul financially because they had such a deep personal concern and connection with him already. That's why he says in verse 14, It was good of you. You did the beautifully right thing, the obvious thing in one sense, to help me in my material need. Because you have shared with me the wonders of the gospel of Christ. The first and most important currency in the kingdom is concern. And I just want to ask you this morning, what things are you concerned about today? Do you have a heart for the mission of God and his workers all around the world? If your citizenship is in heaven, if you belong to him then the things that move the heart of God are going to move your heart as well. And in your passion to follow Jesus, you're going to love the things that Jesus loves. And for Paul, at the very top of that list, is getting the gospel to every person throughout the very ends of the earth. The second currency in the kingdom of heaven is cash. Sorry, go back. Yeah, there we go. And cash is the evidence of partnership. Concern is the foundation for partnership. Cash is the evidence of partnership. See, to talk about concern is meaningless unless there's some evidence. Unless the rubber meets the road. Faith without works is dead. And so in these next verses, Paul speaks a lot about money and how it was the sign and, in a sense, the seal of their koinonia, of their partnership with him. Let's look at a few of these phrases. Verse 15, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving. These are fascinating terms. They're actually commercial accounting terms. They literally mean credits and debits. And so the New English Bible translates this phrase, you are my partners in payments and in receipts. Verse 16, even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my need. Money. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift. What was the gift? It was money that they sent. Verse 18, I have received full payment. And here again, he uses a very commercial term. We, we don't usually speak of supporting missionaries as payment, but that's exactly what Paul did. He's, he's couching this whole section in commercial terminology because it has to do with money, with cash. And this is what we might call divine trickle-down economics. That God wants his money to trickle down through his people to his servants that are reaching to the ends of the earth to proclaim the name of Jesus. And notice what Paul says about the nature of their giving. This is fascinating. First of all, it was immediate, verse 15. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel. That doesn't mean the very first time the gospel was preached. It means when the gospel came to them. What did they do? From the day they were converted, they began to participate financially in the ministry of God. Giving is not an advanced course for mature believers. It is a growing 101 course. We need to start from day one when we enter the kingdom of heaven to give our finances over to him and to begin to operate under the principles of divine economics. So if you're new in the faith, if you're new to the church, welcome. Bruce gave a great report about the giving, but you need to be a part of that as well. Divine economics gives immediately. Secondly, it was unique. Again, in verse 15, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. This is unusual because Paul had planted many churches throughout all of Asia Minor and Greece. And he says there was no other church that gave like you did. And and why? Well, because no other church cared as much about Paul. They were special in their connection with Paul and and that overflowed in them giving of their resources to meet Paul's material needs. Third, their giving was prompt, verse 16. Even in Thessalonica you sent help. Thessalonica was the very next city that Paul went to after he left Philippi, way back in the beginning. And immediately he had some financial need there. And this church, small and perhaps unorganized as it was, still cared enough about him to immediately send him some money to help him out. Fourth, it was repeated. Look again in verse 16. You sent me help for my needs once and again. Time and again they sent money for his needs. These weren't folks who said, I've given it the office, I'm good. You know, they weren't happy with a one-time gift because for them, until the mission was accomplished, the supporting should not stop. They gave again and again and again, and now 12 years later are still giving because the mission continues to be needed. Fifth, it was generous. Verse 18, I have received full payment and more. Paul bends over backwards to let them know that he's not angling for another donation. He says, you gave me so much money that I've got everything I need right now. You've given generously. Thank you so much. Even though I didn't really need it because God's taking care of my needs. He met my needs through you and he thanks them for that. And finally, their giving was sacrificial. And if you're paying close attention and reading in your Bible, you might ask, so where do you find that in our text for today? And the answer is that it's not in these verses that we just read. But do you remember what we read in chapter one, verse twenty nine and thirty? They were in the middle of a persecution. They were being afflicted, and they still gave. In fact, listen to what Paul says about these churches in 2 Corinthians 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So certainly this includes the church of Philippi. What was the grace given to them? For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, this was money that they had given for the saints who were suffering from a famine in Jerusalem. But this is the Philippian church around the same time. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will. You see, what you and I tend to do is we say, you know, things are pretty tight right now. I I don't have any extra room in the budget, so I'm going to wait until the storm settles down, and then I'll start giving. Uh Uh-uh. That is the way the world operates. How do divine economics operate? Divine economics say that God will give you grace to give even in the middle of your severe affliction and poverty. And he can allow you to overflow in abundance of generosity. And that's what he had done in the Philippians' hearts. And that's why this is such a beautiful thing. And he goes on to describe how beautiful it is in the end of verse 18. He says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. And here he uses three phrases to describe the result of their giving in God's eyes. First, it was a fragrant offering. The image goes back to the Old Testament where it says in many occasions that the sacrifices that God's people offered to him rise up in his nostrils as a pleasant or a pleasing aroma. And and you might wonder, does God smell does he have a nose? No, he doesn't. This is a picture, a metaphor to help us understand what's going on. And it's a great picture because you and I understand well what aromas are. Think about the coffee maker in the morning as you wake up. Or maybe your wife puts some bacon on the, on the skillet. That aroma goes all through the house. Now it's getting a little late in the morning to be talking about this. But you know what I'm speaking of. Maybe you come home, your wife's got some bread in the oven. The aroma just fills the whole house. Then you go out and put some steaks on the grill and suddenly the whole neighborhood is filled with this. What, what are these pleasing aromas? They, they just fill us with joy and delight and satisfaction. And he says, this is exactly your offering has has been received by God and it's come up into his nostrils as a very pleasing aroma. Secondly, he says it was an acceptable sacrifice. Now, why was it acceptable? Well, certainly because it was given from a pure heart. But I think also it was acceptable because it was a sacrifice from these people. They had virtually nothing, and yet they gave generously to Paul. It Reminds me of when Jesus was in the temple and he saw people giving money. Some rich people came in and threw in bags of money. And then a a widow came along and very quietly put in two small copper coins. And Jesus turned to his disciples and said, look at what just happened. Who has put in more money? The widow has put in more because they gave out of their excess. It didn't cost them really very much to give. But she, out of her poverty, has given all she had to live on. My friends, that is a sacrifice. And that is acceptable to God. When we say, God, I love you and I love your work so much that I don't actually know where this money is going to come from to take care of my needs, but I'm going to give it first to you. And God delights in that because he loves it when his children trust him to take care of them. And we'll find out a a bit more about that in a moment. And then thirdly, he says it was a pleasing sacrifice to God. It warmed his heart. Why? Because his children were now becoming like his son. Do you remember what Paul had said in chapter 2? That we need to consider others more important than ourselves. We need to be like Jesus and empty ourselves for other people. Well, you can't really do that just sitting home watching TV doing nothing for people. You've got to actually demonstrate that. And these people had done that. The Philippian church had proven that they were considering others as more important than themselves. They were following in Jesus' footsteps by emptying themselves on behalf of God's mission. And God said, this is pleasing in my sight. I love what you have done. Because, as it says in Second Corinthians 8... They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And God loves nothing more than when we give ourselves lock, stock and barrel to him and let him take control of our lives. So that's the second currency in the kingdom of heaven, cash. The first is concern. The third is credit. And credit is the result of our partnership, verses 17 and 19. Now we know what credit is, don't we? If you were to go home this afternoon, log on to your bank account and see that there was a $1,000 credit that you were not aware of in your bank account, you'd, you'd it would be a good day for you, right? What would that mean? That would mean not that you have the cash in hand, but it means that it's in your account. You have something coming to you that is yours and you can take it anytime you want. Now Paul, in this last section, says that there is heavenly credit given to your account, and it comes in two types. First, there is a long-term, distant future credit, verse 17. Let's look at that first. Fascinating verse. Paul says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul makes it very clear once again that he's not interested in his need, but in their gain. His needs are irrelevant in one sense, because he said, I've learned to live with virtually nothing. God's taking care of me, whether I have a lot or a little, it it doesn't matter. But why I'm really excited about this gift is because you're getting something by giving. And you say, wait a minute, they're getting something by giving? That's not how my bank works. When I withdraw money, that shows up as a debit. I lose. I lose. Aha, but you're still thinking of worldly, earthly economics. And that's how earthly economics work. Divine economics work completely the other way. Here's what Jesus said. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. God promises to give back when we give to him. And that's what Paul is talking about in verse 17. I seek the fruit. The word literally is fruit, but it maybe should be translated profit or interest because he's speaking in financial accounting terms in this whole passage. And what he's saying is that you have an account in heaven that is growing. It's It's got investments that you're sending on ahead. And what's really interesting is the verb that's used here. He uses a present participle. Now, doesn't that get you all excited this morning? Uh, Let me tell you, if you could use a present participle verb with your banker, you would be very happy about it. Because a present participle means it's not a one-time action, but it's an ongoing, continuous thing. And so the picture here that Paul is is portraying is that you put a one-time investment in, and then it continues to add interest. It's compounding interest. Every single day it grows all by itself. That's what he's saying. Gordon Fee translated it, an ever-increasing balance in your divine account. And maybe you're saying, well, that sounds really great, but hold on a minute. What are you actually talking about? Is this some pie-in-the-sky promise? Pretty much, that's exactly what it is. Yep, that's what he has promised. Uh, What do I mean by that? Well, he said, Jesus said this in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures where? In heaven. And you say, well, what are those treasures? I need to know what they're like to know whether it's going to be worth investing in them. The Bible never tells us what those treasures are. I think because God doesn't want us to be drawn in by the lure of something selfish. But he does encourage us to give by saying that you are having a credit that continues to increase to your account in heaven. What are those treasures? I can't tell you this morning because the Bible doesn't. But I do know this, that heaven is a glorious place. Because it's where God lives. In in fact, the best words the Bible can use to describe it is streets of gold and gates of pearls. Heaven is so fabulous. And we have treasure in heaven? If we have something that's a treasure in heaven, it's going to be beautiful and desirable and fulfilling beyond our wildest imagination. And that's about all God wants us to know about it right now. But it is reserved in heaven for you, he says. Your credit is increasing in heaven as you give to my work here on this world, earth. You see, there's a long term future credit if we invest in God's work. And it's guaranteed by the FDIC, the Future Divine Investment Corporation. <laughs> well, maybe you still don't quite have that, and, and I don't know how else to describe it to you. Let me, let me try this way. If I were to say I've got something behind that curtain and you can have it if you give me one of these, would, would, you, would you give me your 20? You're a little suspicious. You're going, I want to know first what's behind the curtain. If it's a pencil, no way. But if this was behind the curtain, what would you think about your $20 investment? I mean, what would you rather have? That or that? That is like an eye test. Or that? (laughs) See, this one's better. We see this more clearly. We, We want this. And it's way even better than gold. And that's why Paul was so excited for the Philippians' giving. Not because it met his need, but because it increased their account in heaven. And he's thrilled for his friends and fellow believers. Someone has said the only money you'll ever see again is the money you give to God. And this is not a get-rich-quick scheme, but it is a get-rich-forever scheme. Well, maybe you're still a skeptic and you're saying, that's a long time away from now. I've got a lot of years to live on this world, and if I give my money away right now, how am I going to live tomorrow? Well, he's got the answer for us in verse 19. But let me ask you first about that widow What do you think happened to her? She gave literally her last two cents to God. All that she had to live on. Do you suppose she died a few days later? Well, we don't know. I'm dying to find out actually when we get to heaven. But here's what I think happened. I think God gave it back to her. Because that's what his promise is. When we give to him, he gives back to us. That's exactly what he says in verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And here is our short-term, immediate future credit in the kingdom of God. The promise is that God will meet any material need created by your generosity. Paul says, my God. An interesting choice of words there. He doesn't say your God. And I think perhaps what he's saying is, You know, I don't have the means to reciprocate to you. You've given me so much. But but my God whom I serve will assume responsibility for reciprocation. And he says he will meet every need of yours. This is what we might call divine supply side economics. God is going to supply everything that is needed. And maybe you push a little harder and say, well, what does that actually mean? Like, is God going to pay for my grocery bill? And I say, yes, God's promised to provide food for you. Now, He might look through your grocery bag and He might say, you, you may not really need those Twinkies in there, but the things that you really need, I'm going to give you. So is God going to pay my rent? Yeah, God will provide a place for you to live if you're living reasonably within your means. Is God going to provide my uh, credit card at Nordstrom Rack? Well... You need clothes, and if you need clothes, buy them. God will provide that. Is God going to provide your monthly payment on your Maserati? No, I don't think He will, for most of us. (laughs) You see why? Because we can get around in other types of vehicles. And the point is not that God will give you every need you have, every want you have, but He will supply every single need. The whole context of these verses is physical, material need. I think that's the main point of this promise in verse 19. But it is bigger than that. He says every need. And they have needs that are not material. In fact, they have needs that he has raised in this book. And let me just review for you some of the things that God will supply for us that he asks of us. He will... Give them all they need so that their love may abound more and more so that they may approve what is excellent, so that they may live pure and blameless, so that they will be filled with the fruit of righteousness, so that they will live in a manner worthy of the gospel, so they will not be frightened by their opponents, so that they will think of others as better than themselves, so that they will have the mind of Christ, so that they will work out their salvation with fear and trembling, so that they will do all things without murmuring and disputing, so that they will consider Christ and his sufferings more valuable than everything else so that they will press on towards the goal of knowing Christ, so that they will understand that their citizenship is in heaven, so that they will agree with one another when they disagree, so that they will rejoice at all times, so that in everything they will pray with thanksgiving, and they will learn to think about the things that are good and right, and they will be content in any and every circumstance. Those, my friends, are the needs that God will meet in our lives if we are faithful with the resources He's entrusted to us. And how will he supply those needs? He says, according to his riches in glory. See, their lavish generosity is exceeded beyond all imagination by the lavish wealth of God. Imagine with me for a moment if you were to get a call this afternoon from Bill Gates, personal assistant, and she said you're going to get a gift from Bill tomorrow, what would you be expecting in the mail? A box of Cracker Jacks? Now you see, that would not be a gift befitting his wealth. And what he's saying here is that God will pour out abundantly on you in a manner befitting his glorious riches in heaven. So maybe he will let you keep those Twinkies after all. That's for him to decide. The point is that he will abundantly in his wisdom pour out upon us more than we could ever ask or imagine. if we're faithful, to put him first and invest our resources in his kingdom. And then finally, in verse 19, in Christ Jesus. Here is the key to this promise and to this whole passage and to the whole book. What is he saying? These glorious treasures that are ours are ours only because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus, we have a way opened to us, to the Father, We have now been given the right to become children of God. We're His children. And if we are children, then we are heirs, Romans 8 says, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. My friends, Jesus has unlocked this great door to this treasury for us. And that's why this promise is ours in Christ Jesus. If you are not yet in Christ Jesus, you're missing out on a tremendous experience both here and for all of eternity. If you're not a citizen of heaven, we'd love to talk to you about that today. And if you're just learning more about this strange thing called the kingdom of heaven, we're glad you're here to get a taste of it. But there'll be some people at the front at the end of the service. We'd love to talk to you about how you can become in Christ Jesus, become a child of God, become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And so notice who this promise is for. Uh, I don't know if you were kind of bummed last week when Job Artemis kind of ruined 4.13 for us, you remember that, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, that in context doesn't mean that you're guaranteed to make the starting lineup on your school's football team, this is not a a mantra for us to work hard, what is 4.13? It is a promise that we will be able to be content in any circumstances through his power who lives in us. You see, we need to interpret the Bible in its context. We need to understand what it's actually saying. And in the same way, I I need to caution you about 419, because this may be one of your favorite verses as well. My God will supply all of my needs. So great. Well, he will, but there's a condition. And how do I know that? There's a little preposition right at the beginning of this verse. And. And in Greek, it's very clear that the reason for the promise in verse 19 is the things that have happened in the verses before that. Who is this promise for? This promise is for those who are generous toward God, who understand divine economics, who have partnered in the gospel and made available their concern and their cash and understand that God in his turn will provide the credit that they need both now and for all of eternity. It's similar to what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6. Remember, he said, your father knows all of your needs. You don't need to really necessarily tell him about them. He knows you need food and drink and clothing and and he's going to meet all those. But there's a condition there as well. And what was that condition? Verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. And that's exactly what the Philippians had done. They were seeking first the kingdom of God. They wanted His rule in their lives and they wanted His rule to extend over all of the earth. And that's what drove them to give of their resources to make that happen. And so Paul assures them that because they've done that, God will meet richly and abundantly any and every need that they have. So Paul ends the letter with a glorious benediction. Verse 20, To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. This is all about him. Amen. And then he closes with a few words of personal greetings, perhaps in his own handwriting, to authenticate the letter. He says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. It's very loving and very individual. Nobody is left out. There's no favoritism in the kingdom or with Paul. The brothers who are with me greet you. You're not alone, he says. There's a a wider body of Christ, and we're all one together in him. And then I love verse 22. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. And if Paul was texting this, he would have put an emoticon right here. It would have been a winky eye. (laughs) Because you know what he's saying with a wink and a smile? He's saying, this is working. God has penetrated the heart of the Roman Empire through my witness that has been enabled by your concern and your support. And what's happened? Now people in Caesar's household, some people within the whole administration of the kingdom of Rome had come to faith in Jesus Christ. And he's encouraging them and he's saying, you've made the right choice. You're on the right side. Keep it up because we're going to win this thing in the end because we have a great King Jesus who is at the front of our battle. See, God is a fabulous accountant All expenditures and receipts are being kept track of. And I thought as we close, we would just quick do a a review of of who gave what and kind of what the benefits were of their giving. What did Paul give? He gave ministry. He he preached the word. Uh, What did he receive? He received friendship, the love and concern of the Philippians, and he also received their money, their financial support. What did the Philippians give? Well, they gave, first of all, their friendship to him their love, their concern, and then they gave their cash. They supported him in his need. But now look at this last column, all from our text today. What did they receive by understanding and applying the principles of divine economics? First of all, tremendous ministry happened, both among them in Philippi, then in Thessalonica, all through Asia Minor, and now clear into the heart of Caesar's empire itself. The gospel is spreading. People are being saved As a result of their investment. They also get Paul's joy. As missionaries for 14 years. We love to read over our monthly financial statements. Not just because it meant that we would have money to eat with that month. But primarily because it meant there were people who cared about us. And were with us in the job. And that's what this letter is about. And this thank you at the end. He just wants to say you have just encouraged me so much by partnering with me in this way, and I'm going to be able to continue because of your support for me. As we saw, they received God's pleasure. God delighted in their gifts. They also received for themselves an eternal reward that continues to grow in heaven. And then finally, an earthly promise. Wow, what an amazing deal Divine Economics offers when giving is gained. Economics, we said, is the production, the consumption, and the transfer of wealth. And let me just, as we close, relate that to these three currencies. The first currency is concern, and I think this has to do with the transfer of wealth, where you take wealth from yourself and you transfer it on to the workers in the kingdom of God. The second currency is cash. That has to do with the consumption of wealth. Who should consume wealth in the kingdom? Well, we certainly consume it in our daily needs and that's fine, but our priority needs to be that the worker and the work should have the priority in consumption of wealth. And then finally, credit. The long-term and the short-term rewards are really the production of wealth. Do you know you can actually create wealth by giving it away in the kingdom? And if you'll be wise enough to understand that, you will invest more than you ever have before in God's work. The main point of this passage is not the giving of our money, but the giving of ourselves. And that's what the Philippians had done. In their passion to follow Jesus, they identified so closely with his work and his workers that they gave everything that they had. They became full partners with Paul in the ministry. And when you and I follow Jesus like that, he pours out his blessings On the world, on his workers, and then back on top of us as well. Praise be to his glorious name. We have a very unique privilege this morning. God is doing something in our church similar to what happened in the Philippian church. He is sending people from our congregation to the ends of the earth. And so what a great text for us to close on today as we commissioned three families to go to the Caspian region as long-term missionaries. This is the first time that College Park has ever sent an entire team of people to go to a region of the world and work together to plant the Church of Jesus Christ. They're leaving this month. We want to pray for them and commission them to God's grace. And just before they come, I want to encourage you by saying many of you have done Philippians chapter 4 with these people. You have joined with them. You have become partners with them in the ministry in the Caspian region. And I'm just delighted to be able to say that none of these missionaries needs any more support right now. It's been fully raised because of you folks. You've, you've got it. And we want to just celebrate that today, that God has raised people up with a passion for the lost, He's raised you up to be that supporting and sending body. And today we want to commit them to God's grace as they get ready to move to the Caspian region. So I'm going to ask you folks to come on up. Josh and Amanda Huron with Joel, Jocelyn and Jude. And Jordan and Kate Miller with Lena. And Jesse and Kaylee Beer with Oliva. And as they come up, let me ask the elders and pastors that are in the service if you would come up as well. What we're going to do is what they did in Acts 13. We're going to pray over this team and commit them to the grace of God. Uh, The Millers and Hurons leave in just two weeks for the Caspian region. Jesse and Kaylee decided to wait a little longer, see how this uh, new baby routine goes. So Lord willing, they'll be leaving in October. They're going to join Grant and Deb Olson Who are our team leaders? They are on the ground in the capital city of this country, and uh, we. I asked Jordan if he'd just share briefly, kind of what you guys are going to be doing and why.
2: So we're going to be working with Crew, and our aim is church planting through the platform of a business um, geared towards leadership development. And uh, there's really three main reasons why we're going. And the first is out of obedience. We see a clear command in Scripture to go and make disciples of all the nations, and also in Scripture God's heart. All throughout the Bible is it's it's obvious that his heart is for all the peoples of the world. And so our hearts too should be for all the peoples of the world. Um, secondly, it's it's a love for people. There's about nine million people in the Caspian region, and currently over 99% of them are are headed for an eternity apart from Christ. I mean, we know that unless they hear, they cannot believe and be saved. And so we desperately want them to know and to experience the love of Christ. And then finally, it's because Jesus, is he's worthy. He's worthy to be worshipped by those in the Caspian. And we know that one day from Revelation 7, we get the beautiful picture that one day he will get worship from all people of the world. But that that day is not yet here, and so we still have work to do. So just to reiterate what Nate said, thank you so much. We count it a huge privilege and blessing to be sent by you all, so thank you.
1: Great. And just before we pray for them, uh, I think some of their parents are in this service. Uh, Denny Huron, are you here? Would you stand, Denny? And then Hal and your wife, uh, Sue. Hal and Sue Hayness, uh, Amanda's folks. And then Kate's folks are here Scott and Judy. Do you guys want to stand? You are up there. We just want to thank you guys for letting your children go to the ends of the earth and your grandchildren. It's a great sacrifice you're making, and we commend you for that. Thank you. Okay, we're going to just gather around, place our hands on you guys, and I'm going to lead us in prayer as we commission this team. Father, we're here today because of your love for all the peoples on the face of the earth, as Jordan has just reminded us. Your love extends to every single person. You don't want one person to perish, but that all would repent and come to salvation. And there are people that we first visited 12 years ago in the Caspian region. A large people group of 30 million people and only a few thousand believers. And Lord, back then we made ourselves available to you. To you. We said... Take our church and do whatever you want to reach these people with the gospel. You've done the translation of the Bible through us in that region. You've sent other workers before. And now, Lord, we're just thrilled and humbled and honored to be able to commit these three families as well as Grant and Deb into your care. Lord, you know what is ahead of them. You know the challenges and the difficulties and the joys as well. We pray that you might protect them from the schemes of the evil one. We pray that you would fill them with the Holy Spirit. Make them each like Christ, so that as people from the Caspian region meet them, they would say, there's something different about you people. What is it? And the answer would be, we know Jesus and we love him, and you can as well. Lord, open many doors of ministry for them. We pray that their business platform will be successful. That you would bring in work for them to do. And then we pray that you would create many relationships and opportunities for them to speak forth the word of life. Lord, would you continue to bless this team with unity? What a joy that they've spent every month now for a couple of years meeting together and they love each other. And there's actually two more families going to join them next year. This is an amazing thing you've done. But, Lord, protect that unity. Keep them firm in your word. Help them to resist temptation. Help them to to stand strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we look forward to to the day when they will be back on this stage reporting the wonderful things that you've done through them. Just like Paul said, even some from Caesar's household send you greetings in Christ. We want to have greetings one day from Caspians who have come to faith because of this team. So we thank you for them. We love them. We commit them to your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And now. Just as we finish, let me ask you to stand and I want to read a benediction over them, but over you as well, because God has called you to be light and salt in the place where he has put you. So hear these words from God for the team as well as for our whole church.